Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. Is there and is there, sorry, and there is nothing rather new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. This, this right here is the word of God for the people of God to which we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, well, Father, that is our, our declaration. We do it week in and week out, but it's a declaration, a good habit, a good, a good practice for us to remind ourselves how good you are in gifting us with your word, even the book of Ecclesiastes. And so despite some of the complexity involved in that, this is a very human word, but yet we believe that this is your inspired word. So would you use your word? Would you use this time, God, as a as a tool um, to shape us. That's why we're here. We're not here to be entertained. God, we're not following you for our, our own, uh, simply our own purposes and pleasure, but we are here to experience your great work in our lives. That's what we want. And whether or not we've invited it this week, God, whether or not we've invited your work in our lives for a very long time, we thank you that even right now, your mercies are new. And you have a fresh word you want to speak to us. You have a, a fresh work that you want to do in our lives. So God, would you accomplish that work in our hearts? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak, please, through me. I surrender all that I've prepared and ask for you to speak. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, very good. As I said, uh, the title of this series that we're beginning in Ecclesiastes is Visions of vanity. That's the big idea that we will be exploring here through these 12 chapters. And this morning, as we break into chapter one, as we crack open the book of Ecclesiastes, I, I want to begin with what is the title of my message, and that is a proper introduction. A proper introduction. Have you ever been in a situation before where uh, there was an acquaintance you had that you were even extremely familiar with, and they were even somewhat familiar of you, but there was no proper 
introduction, and maybe you had that awkward moment where it's like, hey, we, we've never officially met, uh, but hey, my name is so-and-so. It's a proper introduction. This happens to me all the time, uh, mainly because I work out of local coffee shops here throughout the week. Um, I hijack them as pastor, pastor workspaces, and I pop my earbuds in, and hopefully I'm a a loving, caring pastor that every now and then takes them out to talk to people. That would be nice, right? But um, I, I spend my time there, and, and it's interesting. You start to see the same people, knowing even predictably, on the same days of the week. Like, I know who's going to walk in at what time to my local coffee shop. And there was one guy in particular a few months ago that went out of his way to say, hey, I see you here all the time. And it was almost like we knew everything about each other. Have you ever done this? Or someone where, like, you don't know them, but you've, like, you've studied them? And you, you th- you've, co- you've written their story in your mind, right? You're like, I know them. I know what they're up to. I know what they've been through, all right? <clears throat> of course, they're, most of the time it's like 95% wrong. But uh, this guy came up to me, and, and we had kind of known each other through for both being there. And we ended up getting into a great conversation. He's a Jewish man here in Boca. We ended up getting into a great conversation about Jesus. And uh, I've actually begun a relationship with this guy. I get to see him there all the time. Uh, but it's sort of that thing where it's like, I see you and I know you, but I haven't experienced a proper introduction, I also need to say this, that what makes this even more awkward in this day and age is social media. Because social media, the awkward medium of stalking people through social media, it allows you to know people way too much before you actually meet them. Like that's happened to me before too, where like I know someone through social media and then I meet them and I have to act like I know nothing about them. Like, oh, what's your name? Oh, you have how many children? Oh, cool. Awesome. Anybody else kind of guilty of that? Like, you know people. Okay, I knew I wasn't the only one. It's like you know them socially, but it's digitally, right? And it's not full knowledge. Now, a proper introduction is necessary. I think a lot of us can treat the Bible that way especially a book like Ecclesiastes. I think a lot of us, we could come to a book like Ecclesiastes and just assume that we know what's going on because we're somewhat familiar. We're acquaintances with the book of Ecclesiastes. We've, we've read a few things. We've seen a couple of verses posted, mostly out of context, right? And so we, we could sort of settle for the surface level knowledge of a book like Ecclesiastes. But listen, if there was ever a book in the Bible that would need a proper introduction before being read, I would submit to you, at least in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation might fall into that category for the New Testament, but at least in the Old Testament, I would say it's the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult and misunderstood books in the scriptures. It's, it's for that reason, also kind of an avoided Book. I, I mean, the, the lack of context that, that, that you could bring to the book of Ecclesiastes could cause you to lose your faith system, lose your belief system. Uh, let, let me give you one example of like one verse in Ecclesiastes that we'll get to that you might get to without a proper introduction. You'd go, I thought this was inspired by God, right? Because we just said that, didn't we? We, we do that every week. Um, we study the Bible here at Solus Church. We're not here to gather around man's opinion. We're here to heed the perspective and the truth of God. Amen? Amen? That's why we're here, to know what God has to say through his word. And one of the best ways to do that is for not just have someone preach and teach God's word, which is commanded in scripture, but we take time every Sunday to stand as the people of Israel would when God's word was read. 
and we devote ourselves, as 1 Timothy 4 tells us, to the public reading of Scripture. We read the Bible aloud. We hear God's Word together, and we make sure to declare each week that this is the Word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Now, we got to get better at that. Come on. It's been, what, six months we've been doing it? That's not just a religious practice. What that is for us is to say something to each other, to say something to ourselves, and to say something to God. And that is this. Nothing else said here is going to be more true than what we just read. Andrew's going to do his best (laughs) by the grace and the mercy and the Spirit of God to communicate God's Word in such a way that I pray that you hear God speak. But when we read God's Word, it's the pure, unadulterated milk of the Word. It's the word of God. So we say this is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God, like you mean it, right? Awesome. God's word. But then you get to Ecclesiastes. And you get to verses like Ecclesiastes 8.15, which says, I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat Drink and be merry. This is my first point today, guys. My first point is I don't know what you're, you're trying to find joy in in life, but I want you to write this down. Don't, don't write this down, all right? But this is a joke, right? But there's nothing better. Nothing. What about relationship with God? Nothing. There, this is the Bible, okay? There's nothing better than to eat. Amen? I mean, I actually feel, felt that amen a little bit. I'm like... It's true. Nothing like a good burrito. A good, for me, it's a good chips, a, a, a nice chip, just one, and salsa. It's a good combo there. Nothing better to drink, to enjoy a nice drink, and to be merry. Now, um, any old philosopher would tell you that this is called hedonism. The Epicureans in Paul's day, they lived by this motto, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, right? Now, if you thought that was um, interesting, look at this next one. This is, gonna, this is what we're going to find in chapter 10. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Amen? All right, so here's my second point today. You're going through issues, marital problems. Point number one, money answers everything. I sound like a televangelist, don't I? I mean, think about the absurdity. Think about, do you see the confusion that can sort of spill into our minds when we come across a book like this without a proper introduction? Context is key. Can someone say amen? amen. Context is key. Uh, So that's what we're after today. We're after gaining some context to this extremely interesting book. This is a book that for years the church struggled to receive. Because of the nature of it, because of the way in which it's written, because of maybe the lack of interpretation uh, that was given. Uh, This is a book that was in a lot of ways rejected. uh, But it is a book inspired by God. And and so let's look first at what is the basis of our introduction. What I want to do today is I want to give, uh, and this is important to write down to know where we're going, I want to give us three key areas of context 
three key areas of context to help us understand the book of Ecclesiastes as we set out on this adventure. Uh, All three areas, these key areas of context for the book of Ecclesiastes, like can you just imagine if someone took a picture right now and like this is what they posted, like, it's just easy context, yeah, all right, I mean it's hilarious. Um, Three key areas, now all three of these key areas, we're going to get to them, but in order to get to them we have to read the first verse because they set it up. The first verse tells us this about Ecclesiastes, this is the word of God, but in, in a In a fundamental sense, it says in verse 1, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, I think this is a great, by the way, um, like reinforcement of the doctrine we just talked about, which is this doctrine of inspiration, um, that that God breathes out the very words we have in this book. Um, Now, the danger that we can tend to do with that doctrine is we either make the Bible all divine and no human, Or what secularism does is they make it all human, no divine. Now, we're not going to do that. We believe this was inspired by God. And if you go to our archives, you can hear a great sermon called Bibliology that hopefully defends that to some extent. But there's another error that I see the church falling into all the time with the scriptures, and it's to remove what is the first verse of what is inspired by God here, that this is, though it's the word of God, it's the words of a man. This is a very human word. That's, that's kind of how we understand the doctrine of inspiration. It's a both human and divine word at the same time. And this book here, it tells us, is the words of not just any old man, but a man introduced to us as the preacher. Now, some people have made a distinction in the book of Ecclesiastes between its author and its main character. Some have said uh, the author, which is unknown, uh, the, the author's unknown, but the main character, nonetheless, is this guy called the preacher. In fact, at the end of Ecclesiastes, we're going to actually get a whole spoiler alert today and go to the very end of Ecclesiastes, but at the end of Ecclesiastes, somebody actually gives like an outro to the preacher's words. Now, I'm under the um, belief and understanding that the preacher and the author are the same person. Nonetheless, let's not get caught up in that. Uh, I believe he is a real person. He talks not, not poetically about himself, but realistically. And it even gives us some details. This preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, first, I love that he introduced himself as the preacher. Now, I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear him introduce himself as the preacher. I, I would guarantee you this. It's not what you're thinking. It's not this, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, a, a, you know, a sweaty forehead. It's not, it's not me, what I'm doing right now. Hopefully I'm preaching the word. The word preacher that he uses there in Hebrew is the word, excuse me, is the word koheleth, koheleth. And uh, this is someone literally who assembles a gathering to communicate a message, a koheleth. Uh, In Greek, it's translated ekklesia. Does that word sound familiar? That's the Greek word for church, the church. You know what the church is? We are the called out, what are we? We are the assembled people of God who are gathered together under a message, and that's a message not of what we have to do for God to love us, but what God has done in Christ to forgive us of our sins and adopt us into his family. That's church. That's church. At the end of the day, that's church. Assembled together under this great message. Now, when it comes to the church, who is the assembler? Jesus is, right? That's an easy Bible you know, answer, VBS answer, by the way. If I ever just throw one out there like that, you just go, Jesus! And you'll be like the, the scholar in the room, okay? But Jesus assembles his church. He builds his church. Um, but he also calls church planters and leaders. I mean, a lot of what we've done here 
is we've assembled a gathering. Hey, thanks for coming to our gathering, and I'm going to communicate a message today. Now, this is what uh, the author of Ecclesiastes refers to himself as. He's a assembler of people to communicate a message. He has a message to tell. But before we get to that message, uh, that word preacher, ecclesia, it gets translate, transliterated into English, and preacher becomes the word, anybody know? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. The, the t- you ever, you're ever wondering, what does that word mean? Ecclesiastes. It's very close to things like ecclesiastical, which has to do with church things. Uh, so it's a similar word. Ecclesiastes literally means the words, as we just saw, the words of the preacher. The words of the preacher. Now, here's what we want to explore. Now that we know basically what this guy is you know, saying about himself, we kind of get this idea of his role. He's a preacher. But notice next, let's look at this thing. This will be the first big idea is let's look at the preacher's identity. The preacher's identity. Um, isn't it interesting that he's not just a preacher, but look at it here. He's also a king. He's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If you go down to verse 12, this preacher says, I, look at verse 12, was, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He goes on to say that he had so much knowledge that, uh, and wisdom that no one after him had any greater knowledge or wisdom than he did. Um, now, I don't know why there is any debate. I, I've looked into it. I've seen the arguments. I don't know why there is any debate as, or speculation around who this could be. Anybody want to take a wild guess as, as who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? A man named Solomon, we'll call him specifically King Solomon. King Solomon. Here's how we know. The first verse says that he was the son of David, king in Jerusalem, uh, over, over all Israel, verse 12 tells us, in Jerusalem. And there's only been one king, okay, who's the son of David, who has been king over all of Israel. It goes on through Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam, and the, the kingdom splits. But this is the only king that ruled over all Jerusalem, and uh, we get a couple hints as to his wisdom as well. So um, we are, are going through this study with the belief, I would say it's more than just kind of, it's the firm belief that scripture teaches us that this is a, a, a poetic um, document, uh, the manuscripts here, that were written by the one and only King Solomon. What, first of all, before we go any further, we're looking at the preacher's identity. So now we know who he is, which is cool because, by the way, I kind of like that he doesn't say who he is. It kind of fits more into the story. It's like really good storytelling and writing. It's, it's kind of, the book of Ecclesiastes has this sort of mystery element to it. And so for him to not say who he is, it just kind of adds to that. And I like a good mystery. All right. So uh, here we get the, 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 the preacher's identity, King Solomon. King Solomon was a remarkable man. Remarkable man. Um, no one like him. No one like him. There was one better than him. We'll get to him. Okay. But in his time... And even throughout history, you can't really count, even on on one hand, anybody that even closely compares to King Solomon. He's the son of David. David is the second king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And through his line, God promised, I'm going to build you a house, David. Through your lineage, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom that was established there in Israel. It would spread through the ends of the earth. That's the announcement made to Mary when Jesus is going to be born. This is the lineage of David. Jesus comes through the lineage of David to extend the kingdom of God. Even here to Boca Raton, Florida. Welcome to the kingdom of God here in Boca Raton, Florida. But it started there in Israel, this theocracy. 
This government under God led the call and the hope was under godly leaders, under godly kings. And through David's lineage, there's a whole other story there. I've had on my heart lately, I've been praying a lot about one day studying First and Second Samuel. It's one of my favorite um, narratives in the Bible. Solomon uh, becomes king through some unique also circumstances. Um, and what was cool, what's cool about Solomon is the Bible even, even tells us this, that, that Solomon, since a young age, has had a tender heart. He's a tender-hearted man. Something like a good, tender-hearted man. I mean, it's good to be a man who also is willing to defend and show up and kick a door down for your family if you need to, all right? But there's nothing like a tender-hearted man, someone who's soft to the things of God and sensitive to the needs of his family. And that's a, that's a man like Solomon. And, and his tenderness was, is probably most revealed in that famous incident and story where Solomon is visited, in, you can read all about it in 1 Kings, the first few chapters there. And in 1 Kings, the Bible tells us that God visits Solomon in a dream. He's king at this point. And God says, Solomon, you know, what, what do you want? What can I do for you? Isn't that cool? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Hello? Hey, it's me, God. Oh, hey, God. What do you want? Whoa, okay. Right? It's kind of like, it feels a little bit like, you know, the, the, the world is my oyster. What, what can I do kind of a thing? Um, and it's amazing what Solomon asks for. He asks for wisdom from God. He says, God, what I want from you, I want this above everything else, is I want the, the, the wisdom to discern right from wrong. I want wisdom to know the right thing to do so that when I have to lead your people, this is a difficult task. There are a lot of needs. There are a lot of issues. There are a lot of disputes. God, so what I need from you, what I'm asking from you is wisdom. Some have called wisdom knowledge applied. The skillful, I remember Russ taught on this in the book of James. It's the skillful application of knowledge. I don't want to just have a bunch of information, but how many of us know how important it is in our different roles of life to be people of wisdom? People are coming to you. They need you to make a decision. They're following your lead. Now, can I just give you a, a, good, a good little side note here? The book of James chapter 1 tells us that we actually have the same access to God's wisdom that Solomon did. Isn't that awesome? Now, God gives Solomon. He puts in Solomon's heart his wisdom. But James 1 tells us, it says this, does any of you, anybody here lack wisdom? Anybody lacking wisdom? Are you in a situation? I mean, let's be honest. We all lack it. We, we all need more of it. Amen? You're in a situation where you're trying to lead. You're trying to act. You're trying to decide. You're trying to discern. What do I do? How do I handle this? How can I be wise? The Bible says if you lack it, just ask for it. Just like Solomon. God, would you give me wisdom? And the Bible promises that God gives generously. Generously and without reproach, without measure. He, pour, he wants to pour out his wisdom on our lives. He, he wants us to be wise even more than we do. And all we got to do is ask. Well, Solomon asked for that wisdom. And the Bible says that this pleased the heart of God. Isn't that cool? Did you know that when you go to God and you say, God, I need your wisdom, he doesn't go, fool. Yeah, you do. Right? When you come to God admitting that you need his guidance and wisdom, he doesn't shame you. He's pleased with that. He goes, wow. Yeah, yeah. And the Bible says he was pleased. And so here's what he said. Solomon, I'm so pleased that you asked for this, that not only am I going to give you wisdom, but because you didn't ask for anything else, you didn't ask for a bigger car, a bigger house. You didn't ask for the, he says, the heads of your enemies. You're like, I got to stop asking for that. That's, you're right. I got to repent of that prayer. 
in-laws, you know. Lord, I got a new one now. Lord, wisdom, right? But there's a joke about in-laws. Love your in-laws. You're in-loves. Um, but God, he, he didn't ask for anything. He says, God, I, and God says, because you just asked for wisdom, I'm actually going to bless you with those things you didn't ask for. And what you see, by the way, this is a great principle. What you most need in life is not that promotion. It's not that next thing. You need wisdom. Because you know what the worst thing that could happen to you is? You get that next thing, next thing, but if you get it without wisdom, you won't keep it. I just need a relationship. I just, I just want a girl to lead. Learn to lead yourself. Wisdom. So this is a great principle of life. Uh, but God saw in Solomon's life, he had the order right. He wanted wisdom. And, and from that wisdom, God poured out blessing on his life. And I, and I don't think it was just kind of like God pixie-dusting blessing. I believe what God did was he taught a principle. He, he brought those blessings through the wisdom he gave Solomon. That's what you see. So Solomon, in his wisdom, man, he, he, he extends his dominion. I mean, this guy was rolling in the Benjis, man. I mean, this guy was loaded. You want to talk about loaded. You want to talk about wealthy. Uh, one of the most wealthy men who has ever lived. This guy had more than you could imagine. The, the largest plates of food, um, the, the, the largest stables, they, they ran out of space for all of his cattle and his horses. Uh, there's some, some notes from history that we get that tell us that everywhere that Solomon went, he would have these six bodyguards run next to him on his chariot, like North Korea, that's what I think of, but um, sorry for talking about North Korea in my sermon, let's move on. Um, that's what he would have. He would have these six guys, and they had to each be six four in just stellar shape, and they had to have this long black hair, so I would, you know, that's the only thing, obviously, that would disqualify me. Um, Every morning, these six chariot sprinting bodyguards would grind, wake up early before the sun rose, and they would grind gold. The Bible tells us that, by the way, that silver in that day was counted as rocks because of how much gold Solomon had. Okay? It's going to be like in heaven when we bring our gold, and God's like, nice pavement, right? You get it? Pave gold. Okay. So much gold in Solomon's kingdom. They would grind the gold each morning and they would take the gold dust and they would sprinkle it in their hair. Right now a girl went, oh, okay, I like that, right? But, I mean, just talk about the exorbitant, the amount of wealth involved here. I mean, this is a wealthy man. But again, Solomon's greatest wealth was his wisdom. Look at what it says here. I want to show you in 1 Kings. It tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom, an exceedingly great understanding, and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. That's really important. Uh, if you have a really big brain, you, you hopefully also will have a really large heart. Solomon had both a, a big brain and a big heart. One of the most dangerous things to do is to become someone who has um, big head, tiny heart syndrome. You know it all. You know every verse in the Bible. You have all the wisdom. You can spit Proverbs at anybody walking up to you with a problem. But what God is looking to produce is people of, of, of great understanding, but also largeness of heart. I think that's so important. It says, Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was out-wisdoming all of them. It says that he was wiser than all the men, than Ethan the Ezrite, and Haman, uh, Calcol, and Darda, 
they, their parents didn't have a lot of wisdom. <laughs> uh, get it? Their names are horrible. But the sons of Mehal. Look, and it says this, that his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He was so wise that he became famous from his wisdom. He spoke three, look at this, this is so cool. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. We have many of them in the book of Proverbs. So, so he's this author. Um, it tells us that he also, his songs were 1,005. This dude is incredible. He's an author and he's a songwriter. All right? And his, his kind of wow hits, his playlist is called the Song of Solomon. Song of Song. All right? It's a good one. That was so youth group. I'm sorry. Okay? He was a songwriter. I mean, what an incredible man. Now, out of all of these accolades, my favorite is in the next verse. I've never read this before about Solomon. Solomon, it says, spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. What? So he's a songwriter, he's an author, he's a king, he's a warrior, he's a temple builder. Oh, sorry, he's not a warrior. His father David was a warrior. He's a, he's a royal king. He's a man of a tender heart. He's got wealth, he's got riches, and he gives TED Talks about trees. He speaks of trees. What does that even mean? I don't even know. But he's like, yeah, I'm a, come on, guys, let's talk. He's, that's another book that's missing from the Bible. It's the Ecclesiastes Part 2. It's about trees. And it's just, come here, let's talk about palm trees. Let's go. We got some good. Anyway, I find that. That's in my humor. It's in like three of yours. We'll keep going. It says, and men of all nations. Oh, it also says that he spoke of animals. So it's like he's into botany. He's into zoology and of birds, flyingology, birdology, and of creeping things. And what's it? Entomology, thanks Kyle, God bless you. Entomology, fishology, all of it, marine biology, I think. Look, it says, in men of all nations from, all, look at this, all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, they came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, some humor there, but I hope you get the idea. This guy has it together, right? Great, great prospect, right? This guy, like the bachelor would, would just, the ratings would go through the roof, okay, if this was the guy, okay, as if they need to anymore. Um, anyway, another sermon. Okay, but uh, this guy, remarkable. He, he's well-versed in songwriting and authorship and leadership. He's well-versed in, in insight to the things of God, to discerning right and gone. He, he's a spiritual man. He's a man of a tender heart. He's well-versed in fish. He's well-versed in animals and flying animals, and he's well-versed in bugs even. He's well-versed in trees, okay? This guy is remarkable. And I think the biggest insight to, obviously, him, again, him being the author of Ecclesiastes, is what does it say here? That kings of the earth, they came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Do you, do you see the preacher there? So that's the Ecclesiastes kind of idea. He's a gatherer of people that come to hear his wisdom. So that is the preacher's identity. Here's the next question, though. What is the preacher's message? As people come to him in Ecclesiastes, what does he have to say? This man of great wisdom, this man of great insight, he says, come, come to me. I, I have some, in, I got to teach you guys some things. Okay, you want to learn about life? Okay, gather around. I can speak to you about trees and birds and insects, but I got some good stuff today about life. So come close. And here's what he says. Here's his message, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. 
What? Come here, come close. Here's the message, okay? It's all meaningless. Do we, are you going to close in prayer? What's going to happen next? Like, preacher, what kind of message is this? Now, we're giving some insight here, right? The, ver- the word vanity here, it's not the thing in your bathroom, okay? Solomon is not like, oh, the vanity of vanities right there at Home Depot. Another horrible joke, sorry. Um, neither is this word mean conceited, like vanity, yeah. This word in the Hebrew, it's a really interesting word. Uh, it's the word hevel, and it's a wisp of vapor or a cloud of smoke, He says, when he looks at life, here's what he has to say about life. He says, all of it, from your life to my life, to your job to my job, everything about this, he says, it's a wisp of vapor. It's a cloud of smoke. Now, I need to keep going here because we will get very confused. I think something really important about this message that Solomon makes is the context of the message. Uh, Notice in verse 3, he says, What point or what profit does a man from all his labor in which he toils, where? Under the sun. Under the sun. It's like a Little Mermaid remix, all right? Under the sun, all right? Solomon here, he gives context to where the meaninglessness lies. It's all vanity. He says it's all meaningless. Here's his conclusion under the sun, in this world, in this life. That's what he's saying. An interesting concept. It's used over 34 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, under the sun. Vanity is used 38 times. Solomon is constantly throughout this book. Here's his message. Everything here is meaningless. Everything under the sun, it's all vanity. And isn't it interesting the way he says it? Vanity of vanities. And this is uh, the, 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 um, the Hebrew listeners at the time would know exactly what, he was ref- what he's contrasting, the Holy of Holies. See, that's where God's presence was. That, that's not under the sun. That's, that's under the sun of the light of his glory. And that's the Holy of Holies where there's weight, where there's something substantial. But here under the sun, it's not like the Holy of Holies. It's the vanity of vanities. It is Empty and interesting, the word again, hevel, under the sun, everything is, it's like smoke. That's the word he uses, like smoke. And the idea is this. Whenever we reach out and we try to grasp on to some substance from life, it just goes right through my fingertips like a wisp of vapor or a cloud of smoke. This is what Solomon's message is. He's saying, I've tried in life to grab on to something substantial and I've been left empty-handed. There's a reason why this book is through a, a recent poll. Atheists were asked, asked, what is their favorite book in the Bible? A large majority, I recently learned, said the book of Ecclesiastes. It's pretty difficultly, brutally honest. Now, now what's going on here, okay? Uh, because we just flipped everything we knew about song, uh, of, of King Solomon on its head. This man of wisdom, what what happened to him? Well, a lot of different ideas and theories. Um, Here's one thing we know about Solomon. Solomon didn't continue his race the way that he started. 
He started as a blessed man with a heart after God like his own father. But what, what the scriptures tell us about Solomon is that he, over time, usually because he learned to depend on his blessings rather than the blesser, he began to sort of forget God in his life. And he never became an atheist. This is really important. There, there, this is not a book of atheism. But he did sort of explore life as though God were optional. Like, let me, let me just kind of put God over here, and that's the story you see in Solomon's life. You, you see Solomon taking on more wives than any wise man really would. You, you see a man who leads even the nation to idol worship. You see a man who started so well, but it looks like his gifts took him to a place that his character couldn't keep him. He didn't have the spiritual infrastructure to support what God was pouring out in his life. It's sad. And, and so he walks away from God, and many, many people believe this, and I hold to this as well, that the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon returning from that road trip. He's writing Ecclesiastes as someone who has done the road trip of life without God, and he's now come back to say what it's like. Here is what life is like if God were optional. Under the sun, it's all vanity. It's interesting. There's a reason, I think, why atheists love this book, because in many ways, Solomon, he takes on the persona of a secular humanist. Someone who's just living for the things of this world. And he's sort of speaking that language. He, he's kind of, it's almost like, and, and, and it's interesting to look at it this way. Um, all throughout Ecclesiastes, you see Solomon say things like this. I, I then reasoned within my heart. And then I spoke to myself. And then I thought amongst myself. It's interesting. Uh, Ecclesiastes is almost like Solomon inviting us into his own wrestle. And it's not his prayer book. It's not like, then I said to God, what should I do next? It's Solomon saying, then I asked myself, which is, can be dangerous when you're your own wise counselor, right? And he goes, and I, I, I reason within myself. So this is, a, this is a very internal book. This is a very human book of Solomon exploring life. And here's what it does for comfortable, superficial Christians. It forces you to take off the rose-colored glasses and ask the hard questions that everybody's asking. And not get away with easy, superficial answers. Aren't we good at that today? People come and they go, I'm just really struggling. Like, life feels so meaningless. Well, it's not, brother. That's how you feel, but here are the facts. Once you know the truth, it will, know, it, it will set you free. So stop feeling that way. Stop asking that question. Nobody knows the answer. Just, just get away from the question. We sort of like push people away with their questions and we just want to get right to the answer. And what you find today in the church is you find Christians giving answers, ignoring the world's questions. Wouldn't it be awesome if the church was a place where you could come as you are with the questions you have, with the frustrations that you have? Wouldn't it be cool if more Christians were like Solomon? Wouldn't it be great if we could be that way? Don't you want to be like that? I don't mean like an eternal pessimist. That's not what I'm saying. But if you could have the freedom to go, here's what I found in life. It's pretty empty. That's what Solomon has to say. He's being real. He's being honest. And this conclusion he makes about it being 
vain and meaningless. Uh, It's got three layers to it. There's a philosophical layer, there's a moral layer, and then there's this experiential layer. The philosophical layer of everything feeling kind of like vain and empty is verse 4, and connected to verse 3, which he asks this question, hey, what's the point of everything you're striving for? What a great question. Great question to ask ourselves. And remember, this is as if, if God doesn't exist, if there is no God, what is the point of everything you're working towards right now in life? Your job, your marriage, your career, building wealth, starting your business. What's the point of it? What profit does it give? And here's what he says. He goes, I got an answer for you. It's his way to say it doesn't have any profit. He says, one generation passes away and another one comes. In other words, you're going to die. It's like, Solomon, chill, bro. I'm trying to live. You're over here talking about death. Solomon will annoy us. He, he will talk about that elephant in the room all throughout the book. Death, death. You're, you're, you're not here forever. What profit is it? You're, you're here. You're going to leave. Is that all it's for? To just YOLO? To just do the most you can? You only live once. Get it all out. And for what? Look at how stark and how sort of uh, pessimistic and, and even like um, dark this is. It's skeptical. He says, the earth, you're going to go away, but guess what? The earth is going to keep going on. One translation says, like, the earth has always been here and it's always going to still be here, but not you. It's like, okay. I love church. All right, verse five. It says, the sun also rises and it sets. The wind, it comes around. It's going to, look, the, the, the rivers, the, the sun's always going to set. You're going to be gone one day and the sun's going to, it's, it's always, it's going to keep setting without you. In other words, you're not at the center of the universe. When you move on, this is really sad, ready? The world moves on. Wow. Thanks, Solomon. I appreciate that philosophical conclusion you've come to on your depressing road trip. I'm going to die. And the world's going to continue. The wind is going to whirl. The rivers are going to run. <laughs> the sun is going to set, no matter what. And the second thing we said is it's a moral conclusion. This is interesting. So Solomon is trying to grasp sort of the philosophical meaning to life. But when he tries, by the way, the atheists, this is where they are pinned against the wall. Without God, there's no meaning. I love when they say, I love when they make a point And they're like, you know, listen, there is no meaning. And you say, do you mean that? By the way, that's a great thing to say. It sounded pretty meaningful, what you just said. But anyway, this is where the atheists is stuck. There's an issue of meaning. It's like, well, what is the meaning? Um, But there's also this moral component because Solomon, it's interesting. This isn't the only book he wrote. We know he wrote Proverbs. And Proverbs is the kind of book that we would probably prefer here on a Sunday morning more than this message, you're going to die. I mean, that's literally what today's message is, okay? Like, so Solomon writes in Proverbs at a younger stage in his life, basically he writes the formula for how life works well. Anybody want to know that formula, by the way? I do. Okay? It's basically kind of a cause and effect principled book. Okay? The, 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 the wicked will perish, the righteous will prosper. The foolish will not be promoted, but the wise will be. It's basically how it works. It's a book about the good life. How do I get the good life? And then Solomon lives his life. And what he finds, listen, have you been here yet? Life did not deliver on what he expected. 
I was righteous. And they still left me. I've ran as much as I could away from wickedness, and I wasn't rewarded. I was the most faithful in my workplace, and they were promoted. I was good. Why am I suffering? And Solomon gets into this moral dilemma. Do you see what he says it there? I think this is such an interesting verse. He says in verse 8, men cannot express it. Talking about life. You ever been there? You ever had your belief system flipped on its head and you didn't know what to say? And someone's like, what do you feel? And you just go, I just, I can't even express it. I don't know. I'm disappointed. And often, the, often the, it's the degree, the, it's this gap. It's between my expectation and what I experience. It's often that gap that determines the weight of your disappointment. I've experienced this. Loss in our family, loss of my mom at a young age, loss of Brittany's mom, also at a young age. Like, my life script that I wrote for myself at 17, 18, did not look like losing my mom at 21, three months before my wedding. And what's your version of that? Do you have a version of that? You go, I didn't imagine it this way. And, and it's to this that Solomon says, it's kind of like trying to grab hold of some substance of expectation, but it just falls through your fingers. This is what Solomon says. This is what life is like. So there's this, this philosophical component. There's this moral component. One more piece of bad news, then we'll, re- we'll rejoice in Jesus, Okay. And then there's this experiential component. He says, listen, I've come back from my road trip and I saw some amazing things. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at all the things that Solomon tried to to use to fill the hole, the God-shaped hole in his life. He goes, I've come back and I'll, I'll tell you this. Here's what I've learned. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. If I could just see that promotion, if I could just see him or her there during that aisle at my wedding, if I could just see that fulfillment of that prayer, if I could just see this, if I could just get this, if I can just have this. Next week, we're going to talk all about if I only. Solomon says, here's what I found. I've tried it all. And the eye is never satisfied. The ear is never satisfied. And he talks about sort of what we tend to do with that. We face dissatisfaction in life looking for this thing or that thing to give us what we're looking for. And whenever it doesn't, what we do is we try to move on to the next new thing. Well, it's, here's the problem. Here's why I'm so dissatisfied in life. I got a bunch of old things in my life. I look around, everybody who's got new stuff, they seem so happy. That's my problem. I need new. I need new. And Solomon says, hate to break it to you, There's nothing new. That's what he says. Did you read it there? Next verse is, there's nothing new under the sun. He goes, there's nothing that's going to be new that hasn't already been. And that's not just going to be forgotten. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. The second you get that new thing, it's old. Like the second you save up enough money to buy the new iPhone, there's already a new one. And here is the rat race that we get stuck in. What next new thing are you looking for right now out of life? And there's no reason in your track record to look for anything else in this world, but you're buying into the lie that if you can just get something else new, then you'll be happy. 
Then I'll be satisfied. Man, if I could just get a new spouse. If I could just get a new date. If I could just get, man, I hear this. If I could, man, we just need a new church. New church. A lot of people came to our church when we first started that aren't here anymore. Can I tell you why? Because it was new. You know what I mean? It's like, no, new. It's new. This is the church we've been waiting for. Here it is. Solace. Yeah. And here is a place of humility that we as leadership and we as a church have always had to stay at. There's nothing new under the sun. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you'll find, guess what? Things in the church are kind of the same yesterday, today, and forever. The good news is not forever. We're going to be different. And maybe for a time that new thing will give you the sense of like, this is what I've been waiting for, but it won't take long. Before you're left in the same dilemma as Solomon, the same dilemma as all of us, you're left in this place of saying, I'm empty. I've reached out philosophically to try to grab some meaning without God, and it's like a wisp of vapor. I've, I've had this life script for my life of what it was going to look like and how it was going to turn out, and I reached for it, and it was gone. And My worst nightmares came true. Not only did my dreams not get fulfilled, but my worst nightmares. I've tried everything this world has to offer. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And Solomon goes, listen, if you haven't tried that yet, he says, I've tried it for you. And it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. And here I am with this conclusion under the sun that all is vanity. Now, The reason why we have to face these hard conclusions is because if we don't ever ask these hard questions, if we don't ever face these stark realities, we will not be able to experience the joy and the blessing that God is. You see, sometimes you have to get to the place where you have nothing left. It's been said, right? Sometimes God will let you know that you know, you have nothing but God to know that that's all you actually had all along was him. And he gets to this place for a reason. Now, now he said that this is his message, but I close with this. And this is Solomon's point. What, what's his point? I mean, his message is it's all meaningless, but there's a point here. You see, Solomon leads us to ask these questions so that we might look somewhere else to find the answers. Now, it doesn't say it here, but if you look close here, go to the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12. Would you turn there with me? Super duper spoiler alert here, okay? Here's how the book ends. Verse 13 of chapter 12, Solomon makes his point. He goes, here's what I've experienced. Here's my message. It's all meaningless, but here's the point. He says, let us, or rather this is the author, says, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all, 
For God will bring every work into judgment, including every seeking secret thing, whether good or evil. Isn't this interesting? Doesn't this contrast what we just talked about? Living in all of the world and being left dry. Going through the rut of my nine to five for no reason. And here, the book ends with saying, but that's not where the story ends. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion that God knows every detail of your life. And everything that's going on, he's aware of, he's involved in. He's not disconnected. He's more connected than you can ever hope for him to be. You see, what, what, what Solomon is getting us to here in the end, and we, we see the, the, the foreshadow of it there, but Solomon is getting us to do this specific thing. I want to say it this way. Solomon is trying to get us to get over the sun. Get over the sun. You will never reach over the sun to find your meaning if you still think it's found under the sun. And Solomon's going to help us along the way to get over the sun to where life really is in God, where satisfaction is really found. And what we find is, is that when we get over the sun and we get to God, we're, we're not led to reject the enjoyment of life, the good drinks, the, the good food, as he said, my work, but we're actually able to enjoy them in the way God intended. Now I'm actually able to enjoy my spouse, to enjoy that meal, to enjoy my work, because I see it now not as the source of my meaning, but as a blessing from God for me to steward. That's where he's going to get us, to get over the sun in order that we might in life avoid life's pitfalls. As eclectic as we'll find this book to be, wisdom is certainly, it's been said that in Ecclesiastes, wisdom is Solomon's base camp. He's going to give us wisdom for how to navigate life under the sun by getting over it and thinking about God. Um, but what one author said is, though wisdom is his base camp, he's, he's willing to explore. He'll leave wisdom. <laughs> he'll go over here and say really hard things and ask really hard questions. He'll, he'll press the boundaries. But again, it's to get over the sun. And then I also will close with saying it this way. It's to get over the sun with an, with an O, not a U. And by sun, I don't mean Jesus. I mean Solomon. Solomon introduces himself as the preacher, as the one who he says, come gather around, come hear my message. Um, I'm the son of David, he says. And I would say this would be the ultimate point of Solomon's message. To bring us to him so that by the spirit we can get through him to one, listen to this, that Matthew 12:42 can you throw that up Mike Matthew 12:42 it says this it says that there is a, a one who's greater than Solomon now you know who said this Jesus said this in the face of the Pharisees he says indeed one greater than Solomon is here Jesus is is the greater than Solomon so we come to Ecclesiastes for the ultimate point of being pointed to Jesus who not only will tell us how to avoid the pitfalls of life, you see, that's all that Solomon can do. All Solomon can do is say, here's how you don't really waste your life. But you know what he can't do? He can't forgive you for the things you've done wrong. He, he can't cover you with his grace for the amount of times you've fallen into the pit. You know what else Solomon can't do? Solomon can point you the way to satisfaction, but he can't say what Jesus said, which is, I am the way. You see, this is a book, listen that raises questions to which Jesus is the answer. And that's the heart and that is the hope of our study throughout this time. 
Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.